I'm Matt Miller of the Ditch That Textbook Podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of the individual hosts. Make sure you check out all the other great educational podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and professional brand voice? Here's the secret. We all want to feel connected to brands we buy from. What better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? Kitcaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time to explore the world of podcasting with Kitcaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from their staff of communication experts. Kitcaster is your secret weapon in podcasting for business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com slash TLLK12 or go to my webpage at stephenmiletto.com slash sponsors. Click on the Kitcaster logo and apply for a special offer just for the friends of Teaching Learning Leading K-12. Hey, do you need help in becoming more effective at teaching virtual classes? Well, NVTA, the National Virtual Teaching Association, has a semester program that is college accredited and designed to help you become more successful as a virtual teacher. A few of the topics that will be focused on are establishing relationships in the virtual environment, virtual instruction best practices, differentiation in the virtual classroom, and managing virtual resources, among others. NVTA is an affiliate partner with Teaching Learning Leading K-12, and there's so much there to help you be successful in the virtual classroom. Uh, so take a look. Go to my website, stephenmiletto.com sponsors, find the NVTA logo, and click on it to take you to their website. Happy learning. Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Tony Dodeski. He's the editor and publisher of Natural Traveler magazine, a newspaper and magazine journalist, a photographer, a musician, a playwright, a ghostwriter, the author of two business books, and now the author of the mystery thriller novel, Unfinished Business. So much cool stuff we're going to talk about. You're going to love this interview. Thanks for listening. And uh, by the way, before I forget, it would be so cool if you would go to my website, stephenmiletto.com slash reviews and uh, rate and review the podcast. Could you do that for me, please? That would be so cool. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Hey, Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is partnering with the John Maxwell Company to bring interviews like episode 402 with Jason Stoughton and episode 403 with Jeff Henderson, and also to make you aware of the awesome leadership event called Live to Lead coming October 8th, 2021 to Atlanta, Georgia. Go to l2latl.com for more information. And when you go to check out, use the code K-12 to get a special discount. See you there. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. In many respects, Tony Tedeschi's new novel, Unfinished Business, is an outgrowth of his years working within the business world as a writer of business proposals, business plans, and two business books. It is also a reflection of his years traveling the world writing special sections for Audubon magazine and articles for dozens of other magazines and newspapers spanning the U.S. from the New York Times to the Los Angeles Times. Tedeschi is editor and publisher of Natural Traveler magazine, a limited-run print quarterly founded in 2019. The holder of a B.A. in Journalism from New York University, an M.A. in English Literature from Hofstra University, Tedeschi was greatly influenced by the cultural changes 
that revolving around NYU's urban campus in Lower Manhattan in the 1960s. Bob Dylan was playing the coffee houses, Woody Allen was doing stand-up, the beat poets and progressive jazz musicians were all over Greenwich Village, he says. My co-editor and I at the NYU newspaper created a weekly insert to cover as much of that as we could and made it a lasting impression on me. When I graduated, I wanted to work for the Saturday Evening Post or the New Yorker. Alas, I was 23, drafted by the Army, but took a commission as an Air Force officer, and after four years training pilots for the Vietnam War, returned to New York with a wife and children and followed the dictates of family down divergent roads, all centered around a career as a writer. In addition to his newspaper and magazine journalism, Tedeschi has written two business books, Live Via Satellite, about ComSat Corporation and technology that launched the global communications revolution, and The Whitford Way, about the non-stick coding company that has made the world run more smoothly. He spent years collaborating with his mentor Donald Bain, the ghostwriter of more than 100 mystery novels and author of the Murder, She Wrote mystery novels spun off from the popular TV show. An accomplished photographer, Tedeschi's photos have illustrated much of the journalistic world. He is also a musician and composer, having recently completed his first musical play, Leaving Pleasantville, about the 15-year period from 1955 to 1970 when rock and roll changed the world of music. Tedeschi lives in Glen Cove, New York, with his wife, Andy, one of the country's preeminent gynecological nurse practitioners. They have three daughters and seven grandchildren. About Tony's book, Unfinished Business, a horrific massacre happens in a small Honduran village where a group of militiamen slaughter everyone in a hail of bullets. Eighteen years later, through a series of unrelated events, a mission for truth and revenge takes hold amidst the setting of a greedy, immoral boardroom of a large multinational corporation. The toll of human sacrifice in pursuit of greed drives a powerful exploration into what people cross lines to do what they do. Unfinished Business is a great character exploration into the mind of an unscrupulous CEO. The story spans the world from New York and Central America to the Caribbean and Europe, places that the author has traveled to. The dramatic tension is driven by the CEO is involved in stock manipulation and other business decisions that are so ego-driven that they have destructive effects on the global conglomerate he heads. Some of the CEO's decisions, excused as its only business, have terrible consequences, including the book's opening scene in Honduras. The character who seeks revenge for that crime is a metaphor for all those who have been devastated by the actions of unscrupulous business people. Nonetheless, the plot is a unique detective story involving a business sleuth who must unravel the mystery of what is going on at the company and how it has impacted people, sometimes in lethal ways. Well, Tony, it's awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hi, everyone. As I mentioned to Steve earlier, I have seasonal allergies, so you know you may have some trouble dealing with my squeaky voice. Not a problem. Not a problem. We can we can deal with that. So, Tony, glad you're here and enjoyed your book, Unfinished Business, and uh, looking forward to talking about it. But uh, before we do that, I'd like to uh, talk about something I read in your bio. I mean, I can't I I cannot talk with you without getting into this because this is cool. So I I'm hoping that you're okay with that because uh, this is. Um, you, you said in your bio, Bob Dylan was playing the coffee houses, Woody Allen was doing stand-up, the beat poets and progressive jazz musicians were all over Greenwich Village. My co-editor and I at the NYU newspaper created a weekly insert to cover as much of that as we could, and it made a lasting impression on me. Share a little about the insert and what was happening around you. Sure, of course. I began my uh, college career as a chemical engineering major at MIT, and uh, after a year and a half there, I realized that the, um, the course, courses that I enjoyed the most were courses in the humanities and that I, I really wasn't meant to, to become an engineer. Um, I was from, from, from New York City, and the, it just seemed like uh, the place to transfer to was NYU, and I went there to pursue a degree in journalism. 
What I really didn't know about until I got into the middle of it was that this transfer dropped me into the middle of this incredible cultural scene and a number of things that you had just spoke about. Um, well, uh, I, within a matter of a year, I, I had worked my way up to the co-editor of the newspaper. And typically, you know, in a college newspaper, you know, you, call it, you cover the college, you cover the campus, you cover the you know, student council meetings, that sort of thing. But all around us was this incredible cultural scene going on. And my co-editor and I decided, well, you know, we got to do something about this. And we started uh, a weekly uh, insert for our newspaper where we just covered the scene down there. And we could not have been dropped into a, a more interesting, invigorating cultural scene. Literally, Bob Dylan was just starting to sing in the coffee houses. I mean, he was... You know, he, he. We also had Joan Baez. We had Joni Mitchell. Um, uh, Woody Allen had basically just flunked out of NYU. I don't think I'm libeling him or uh, <laughs> by saying that that's what happened because he used to use it in his comedy routine, and he was doing stand-up down there as well. And then we had the, um, you know, we had the progressive jazz movement where literally these. Uh, quartets and quintets and sextets were defining, you know, music at the time, um, jazz music, and uh, we we just had to cover it. So what we did is, uh, as I said, we created this insert. We it, it immediately, as soon as it uh, first issue hit in the newspaper, uh, people, you know, students at NYU who were who were studying music, who were, you know, in, in literature programs, who were in photography and movie courses, you know, wanted, wanted in. And um, so we, you know, we, we started columns for all of that. And uh, it just went on from there. Um, by the time I graduated, I, I actually didn't want to graduate. <laughs> nice. I, I was having so much fun, I really didn't want to graduate. And, and I, this was a period... 1964, where we still had a military draft. So uh, your student deferment was over when your class graduated. I was 21 and 1A and uh, was immediately drafted by the Army. Wow. What an, what an experience, though, being in and around all that, that eventually would become so impactful. Some of those, those uh, personalities in entertainment, if you will, or just the societal impact uh, those musicians would have. And, um, and uh, entertainers. So uh, it was just amazing. That's that's pretty cool. We were so close to it, by the way, Steve, that um, I remember um, I, I was at the Village Vanguard, which was a jazz joint, and a uh, jazz trombonist named Curtis Fuller, who uh, actually just died about a week ago. Uh, we were up so close covering what was going on there that uh, Curtis Fuller you know, emptied uh, his trombone uh, onto my onto my table. So I knew that I had finally made it into the progressive jazz world. <laughs> nice. nice. That's, that, 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 um, that's an interesting, <laughs> having been a, been a trumpet player, I, that, that gets your attention, right? Nice. <laughs> that's a cool memory. <laughs> Did you ever get a chance to, to meet him, to tell, tell him about that? <laughs> oh, no, I didn't, but uh, I'm sure he would have gotten a kick out of it. <laughs> That's wild. Um, good. Uh, this is awesome. I could I, I could spend a lot of time just talking to you about that. I, I, and I also have to mention this because of something else you said. Um, you're also a musician and composer, having recently completed your first musical play, Leaving Pleasantville, about the 15-year period from 55 to 70 when rock and roll changed the world of music. Talk a little bit about your le your musical, Leaving Pleasantville. Sure. Um, 
during the period, uh, actually, when I was in college, we I had an early rock and roll band, and uh, we we played covers. I mean, uh, rock and roll was just starting. I mean, uh, Rock Around the Clock had just been the number one pop song uh, hit. Uh, and, and then you had Chuck Berry, Little Richard. Uh, we had a rock and roll band. We covered them. Um, I got away from guitar as, uh, you know, I went into the military and got on with other things. Uh, about 20 years ago, I was uh, on, a, on a press junket. And one of the women there, uh, we were having drinks at a bar one night and started talking to me about, well, you know, you, lo- you I see you really love music. Uh, you should you should start playing again. I hadn't played a guitar in like 30 years. Oh, wow. I said, what are you talking about? She said, I don't know. I just get in this vibe of you that, that, that you need to do this. And uh, I don't know. I went home. I, I bought some cheap guitar and I started teaching myself how to play. Uh, within about oh, a couple of years, um, I was hosting open mics where I live here in Glen Cove and starting to write songs. And um, we have, um, in Glen Cove where I live, we have three world-class recording studios. And in fact, one of them, a good friend of mine runs, uh, he actually records Billy Joel for his Sirius uh, XM program. Nice. Anyway, um, I, I got, I, I started to, uh, looking at some of the songs that we're writing and they were reflective of my early days, you know, b- back in college during that period from 1955 to 1970. And I, I, I realized that I, I, you could sort of start stringing these together and it, it just started to develop. That's the way things work with me. I get some <laughs> kind of idea. I start scribbling stuff down and then patterns begin to evolve. Anyway, having a, what amounted to a world-class recording studio at my, you know, back and call and uh, some of the best studio musicians around it over a period of about, Oh, I don't know, two or three years. I, I literally put together this musical as 15 songs. I wrote, wrote the entire book and um, it's just kind of sitting there on a website, leaving pleasantville.com waiting for somebody from Broadway to discover this. And trying to crack into that scene you know, without any sort of connections is all but impossible, especially now when Broadway has been dark for a year and a half and there's a lot lined up. But one day people will realize if you want to know, you know, what happened and what really changed the music, there's a musical sitting there just waiting for somebody to produce it. Awesome. Good luck with it. That's that's so cool that you've, you've written that. And, then, and especially about the, I love the topic. So good stuff. Good stuff. I wish you, wish you well. It'll happen. It'll happen. They're looking for it right now. So <laughs> good. Thank thanks for talking about that. I, you know, it's something else I got. I can't let, I can't let go. You just had this cool um, bio. That's uh, you, you worked for decades with your mentor, Donald Bain, who penned the murder. She wrote mystery series that spun off the television show. I mean, both of you ghost wrote novels. What was that experience like? Oh, it was great. Well, first of all, uh, Don, Don died in 2017. Um, he was a mentor, a friend. We worked together for more than 40 years. Um, how we, we got hooked up uh, on through business. He had a, a, a small company called Hyphenates, and they had a couple of clients, and I was writing for his business clients. Um, and Don was getting so many books to write. Um, he was a, a preeminent ghostwriter uh, that he started, you know, he, he was having to turn down some of them. And eventually he, he had two uh, cop novels, a, a cop and a detective novel that he just couldn't get to. And he said to me, uh, you know, I don't want to turn this down. How would you like to take a shot at this? 
And I said, okay. He said, I'll, I'll mentor you through it. And I, I will be, ast- I, he would be ostensibly the ghostwriter for this. So, so you know, I wrote the two novels. Um, it, it taught me a lot about uh, pacing, about character development, about plots and so on. Um, and we, you know, we, we collaborated on things many times since then. I played no role in, uh, in writing uh, the Murder, She Wrote novels. So those were all done. But uh, we, we developed such a close relationship that, um, you know, if he'd get bogged down with a plot uh, or some character development or whatever, I mean, I was the first person he'd come to, you know, to try to, you know, talk it out with him. It was, it was a wonderful period. He was a great guy. That's cool. That's very cool. I, one of the things I love that you comment about uh, um, him having written under the uh, basically being a the author of the books being Jessica Fletcher, which is not a you know, is a character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that that's great, really. And if you look at it, uh, some of the early books uh, they were co-authored by Jessica Fletcher and Donald Bain, and one of the two authors was did not exist except in the book. I think that's cool. That's awesome. That, that. Yeah, but that was the Don had a great sense of humor. He loved stuff like that, you know. And whenever he wrote, he ghost wrote stuff, right? He would he would use he would choose names for some of the minor characters of real people he knew, nice. so that uh, so that uh, you know if anybody ever doubted that he had written the books, I mean, there, there would be like the guy who ran the deli in his neighborhood. I mean, I even had a walk on part in one of his books, although he had me killed off really early. <laughs> That's wild. So did you you ask him, uh, hey, excuse me, why did I have to die so early? <laughs> nice. Well, anyway, um, I don't know if this is appropriate right now but what to talk about, but uh, one of the things I realized at this point was that I really didn't know anything more about detectives or cops than, you know, the average person or stuff I saw on TV. And when I started thinking about, you know, getting into fiction and, and, and writing a novel, um, it occurred to me that what I did know a lot about was business and that if I were going to create a sleuth, it would be a guy who worked within uh, a business genre anyway. Very cool. So it's, now we're getting close to uh, understanding where this where unfinished business came from, right? Yes. Very cool. So so can you keep going with that thought? I mean, why? I mean, you wrote two business books. Why, why the novel? Why, why did you... I mean, is it just because of that experience you had on the other, in, in the ghostwriting or? It was, it was a lot of influences. Um, I've spent, I mean, the, the, the most significant part of my career has been as a journalist. And I've been a freelance journalist for a long, long time, since about 1980. And so, you know, I, I was traveling the world, you know, writing journalistic pieces. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would fill many, many journals, you know, with, with my interviews and so on. And um, after I'd write pieces, I'd sort of go back and look at, you know, you know, what was, you know, what I was writing about. And I would start, I, I think if I have a, ma- a mantra that sort of drives my work, it would be, but what if, you know, and I, and I would look at these. And of course, when you, when you, when you're writing, when you're writing journalistic piece, you don't make stuff up, you know, right. I mean, at least if you're a, a decent journalist and a good one, you don't. 
Um, but I would look at some of the things that I was writing about and thinking, yeah, okay, that's what happened. But but what if? What if, what if it went down this path? And uh, that started evolving. It, 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 unfinished business was really a, about a 20-year project. I mean, because I would get to it, you know, in between other writing assignments. And, uh, and you know, it, it evolved. There were many influences. Hey, Steve here. And my podcast, Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, is hosted on Podbean. If you use my affiliate link when you sign up for podcast hosting, you will get one month free. I've been on Podbean for the whole existence of my podcast since November of 2013. In that time frame, I've had nonstop service. I've had easy access to assistance when I needed help. I've been able to upload unlimited pictures and podcast episodes. The dashboard is easy to use. My Podbean community has grown tremendously. Looking at starting a podcast? Well, use my affiliate link to get one month free of hosting. Go to my website at stephenmaletto.com sponsors and click on the Podbean hosting link to see what plans are offered and choose the one that you like the best. You'll be glad you did. Well, that's, that's cool. It's just neat to know how that, that came about. So, and you totally understand what uh, would, you know, with all this building in the, your, you know, your experiences and so forth, it, it had to be, you had to be thinking what, like you said, what if, and then started toying with the what if, and that, uh, that's cool. So, you know, let's go ahead and start talking about unfinished business. It is set across numerous travel destinations, how have your life experiences influenced your writing? A number of years ago, um, I was approached by uh, an organization that represented logistic managers. The, these are people who were part of the supply chain. One of the reasons, and, and they, wanted, they wanted to do something that would be entertaining, something that would draw attention to what they did. The interesting thing about logistics managers are is that um, you don't know they're there unless things get screwed up. In other words, the people, do, you know, the, the, the star players in business are, you know, the marketing guys, the financial guys, they're the guys who are up front. The people who are completely taken for granted are the people that run the supply chain. You know, where they get their raw materials, how their raw materials move along the supply chain, how, how the, the raw materials are inventory, that sort of thing. Nobody really cares about that, except if that starts to break down. We have some some classic examples. Oh, well, anyway, I, I was in sort of a competition to you know, produce a novel for this organization. And um, I, while they were interested in some of my ideas at the outset, um, you know, they, they, they wanted a book that was just completely off the mark. They wanted almost like a Superman type hero, you know, to, you know, rush in and save all of this stuff. And that really wasn't where I was going with this, but it created a, a, a situation where, or an interest in me for what was going on here. It was funny this morning, uh, actually before, while I was setting up to, you know, get ready to talk to you, I just clicked on the New York Times and uh, one of the lead articles in the business section is, in, is headlined, How the World Ran Out of Everything. And what you have now is, uh, is a, a global supply chain that really, really controls you know, business. And uh, that, that, that sort of uh, plot line has just been nagging me for, you know, for 20 years. I mean, what happens if it breaks down? And what happens? It also was bumping against, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, bumping against the the, uh, the mystery and cop novels I was doing. Um, suppose something that interrupts the supply chain happens long ago, 
and has a direct impact on the lives of some people, but um, is is obscured by layers and layers of other things that go on in that business or in business in general, to the point where that is just completely obscured. But it 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 causes a situation with one or more people where they can't let it go, and you know something happens that is so you know that's so devastating for them that it creates a. a, a a situation where somebody somebody needs revenge but uh, what what i thought was i you know this you could create an entire novel around linking the effects of what was going on at a business with a cause that at, at by that by that point was completely obscured and i just could not let that go and then um things started to evolve <laughs> Oh, that's cool because that's that's. I mean, you, you see that it's neat hearing you talk about that because as I'm reading your book and there's different things happening in different parts of the world with different companies and such, and you know they're they're realizing that they can't do the job for what they they originally quoted it for, which just the pressures that that creates, and then trying to figure out how to mask it from the person who's putting you know saying, hey, what are you doing to me? We got to get this moving forward, and you know they're in different countries and such, and you know you can really see how your experience with that logistics chain is uh is coming through here because now i'm thinking about some of the different uh aspects of this story that uh um you can really see where you, you know that idea probably got planted in your your thinking yeah well um one of the things i thought about and, and actually after i finished the book and you know what was reading it again over myself um I realized that any anybody who's been involved in business will, will see themselves somewhere in this book you know, they'll, they'll see, they'll see, you know, the points when they, they worked for the good guys. They'll see the points where they were under the thumbs of some of the not so good guys. It, it's a situation where, um, um, you know, what goes on in business drives the world, drives their lives. I mean, you can look at business uh, as, you know, just headlines on the business page, but it has impact on you know real lives the real lives of real people and that's really what i wanted to get into i mean you have a a major computer hack you know it, it gets you know it, it draws a big headline on the business page um and you know it, it eventually is resolved but but how does that happen and how does that you know how how do you have that resolution uh where what about the people who have had to who have had to solve this what about the people who lost jobs because they couldn't or because, you know, this has happened to them? That's um, it, it's interesting because, you know, there's several spots in this in this book where um, I think it's funny because, you know, the world I'm in, I still there's I'm fit right with what you're describing because uh, you run into and especially the experience that you've had, like uh, someone over promising um, mm-hmm. someone who's in the same company, but they they gave you prices that were based on something, but it's taking longer to do. And therefore, um, you know, you have someone who's, who's saying, oh, this can happen and all that. And I, I, you paint a lot of pictures that, yeah, you're right. Someone's either to see themselves or they're also going to say it may not ended up in somebody dying, but (laughs) this, this has been there. (laughs) I've I've been this close to something exactly like that. I think that it's pretty wild. You know, one of the things that, uh, I want to make sure that uh, I talk about is your story as a driven CEO, corporate decisions that are destructive, a mystery and a desire for revenge. Why do you think big business makes a great setting for trouble and mystery? 
Well, and because of for some of the things we've been discussing already, I mean, it, it just impacts all of us. And what happens is, you know, as you get higher and higher up the pyramid, you know, the people at or near the top are the ones that determine so much of what, you know, what goes on. You know, as in the case of my novel, the CEO is so ego-driven that everything, everything in, uh, evolves around what works best for him. Um, that, that begins to, to, to sort of filter down into how it affects other people in, in the company. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that you tend to focus on in a situation like this is all of the, the things, the problems that are going on because of decisions made by the people at the top that you tend to forget that, you know, especially in a, in a large multinational global business like the one I create in the novel, there are people, there, there are the good people down in the divisions, the subdivisions, the subsidiaries and that sort of thing who are, are trying to, you know, to do their jobs every day and to try to, you know, work to fix, you know, some of the problems that are going on. Uh, one of the points that when I, when I talk about my book that, I, that I, I, I make very emphatically is this book is not anti-business. It's, it's anti the bad guys in business. And it's very much pro the good guys. I mean, there are a couple of real heroes in this book that have to really clean up after some of the messes that are being that are that are occurring. Um, one of the other points that I found over the years is some some company, some of the companies that are run by people that I think should not be running them. Uh, those people are there because they they fight the business wars. They like the conflict. They like to bully people. They bully their way to the top. And um, most, most people in business, even at senior levels, many people in business, don't want those kind of fights. They, wanna, they want solutions. They want to solve things. And what I do here is I, I place in conflict somebody who is so ego-driven that everything, uh, everything he does uh, involves how it will positively impact him with people who actually care about the company and want to make sure that it survives. That's, that's cool. That comes through loud and clear in this, in this book. And I think that's, you know, it, it's almost like a, a computer virus. That's really a human virus. <laughs> um, no uh, puns intended towards current situations, but it's yeah. uh, where they have to figure out how to push this out to keep our, I mean, you think about it, you know, like what happened with Enron. I mean, that was uh such a sad thing. I mean, I, there's so many different corporations that were under that uh, uh, under Enron that collapsed simply because of the the problematic people at the top. So, yes, um, I don't know if this is uh, apropos of what we're talking about right now, but two of the business books I wrote, uh, Live via Satellite and uh, The Whitford Way, in both of those cases, the the people in charge were among the best of the best. I mean, the guy who ran the Comsat Labs uh, was 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 an amazing man, and people who who just could not wait to work for him, and they created the first geosynchronous satellites that allowed us to literally have live television around the world for the, you know for the for the first time. In terms of the Whitford Way, it's about a nonstick coding company, 
And um, the, when, when I, when I, they actually, they underwrote uh, the writing of the book that I did. Uh, when friends would ask me, so what are you up to lately? And I'd say, I'm writing a book about nonstick coding company. And the almost universal answer I would get would be, you know, what is it, like five pages long? <laughs> I mean, the only relationship most of us ever have is with their frying pan. And when this, this company coats everything, it's mind boggling. And I mean, just if you just look at the fact that they coat pistons and cylinder walls and, and try to you know, factor that out to how much you know, uh, emissions they're saving because those, those uh, you know, engines are operating more efficiently, you can see the impact it has on the world. And the, the CEO of that company, who is an amazing man, he's, he's just recently retired, um, it was, it, he, he was my quintessential great CEO. This guy was, was really humble. I mean, I, I, when I said to him, you know, you know, what your company does is making the world run more smoothly. And he turned around and he said to me, um, you know, uh, Tony, I really, I, I really don't like hyperbole, you know, please don't go there. And he said, I, I can't say that about myself. And I said, you're not saying it about yourself. I'm saying it about you. And I'm not even saying it about you. Your clients are saying it about you. So, I mean, having that as a model, when I looked at the CEO in my book, I thought, I really got to take this guy down. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Sorry, I'm. I feel like I'm going off on tangents. So. That's all right. I love that. Ta- that's awesome. That fits very well. It's awesome stuff. That's you know, good stuff. I, I can. Um, what a cool experience too. We're researching that because yeah, that type of the impact. Um, wow. I no. Thank you for sharing. I I love that. That was cool. Uh, you know, so let's let's talk about characters because you're kind of giving into some of that right now, as well as you know, I, after hearing the the story about uh, your friend. Uh, um, Mr. Bain, the, uh, you know, any of the, how do you create your characters? I mean, cause already we're hearing a little bit about how some of them probably appeared in here or at least, you know, a little manipulation of the, or changes in some of them. But I mean, how did, how did you go about making, you know, did you have ones that you had to make sure you had, or, I mean, how'd you create your characters? Yeah, that, that, that's a really, that's an interesting question. And I, I I've, um, uh, I've dabbled in fiction for most of my life. Um, and um, uh, mostly short stories, but um, and invariably, and pretty much any novelist will tell you this: um, characters begin by people you've met, you know, or people you know, or that sort of thing, and um, then they begin to evolve. Um, oddly enough, with this book, um, they the the characters sort of evolved out of just journalistic experiences I had, you know, more than a particular character. I mean, the experiences sort of started to define the characters. And um, what, what happened then was, what, you know, when that is the case, the, the characters, you know, at the outset you know, are very machine-like. You know, they're, they're not really all that human. I mean, they're basically the embodiment of a couple of, you know, of points you want to make, major points you want to make. Um, what what happens then is you know it takes a great deal of work you know to start to you know get these people to you know have flesh and blood, and I find that when when a novel really begins to live, is when the characters begin telling you what they're going to do, and you're not telling them what they're going to do. And there have been any number of cases in the in the course of writing this book, 
you know, where my characters have basically slapped me in the face and, you know, and said, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to come up with something else. I'll give you one experience that I had that, that was really most illustrative of what I'm saying right now. I did an earlier version of the book, which unfortunately is still out there on the internet because once something on the internet is there, it never dies, right. it never goes away, right? Uh, but for, but I took the book down years ago. But at any rate, when, when I, had, I self-published it, okay, because I couldn't get any publisher to do it. And what I did was I offered it to book these sort of book clubs, you know, where people, you know, buy a book and, you know, each month and then they meet and discuss it. And I told people that, um, you know, anybody that did my book, you know, I'd be happy to join the conversation. So uh, it turned out that there was a really sort of a, a, a really, really impressive book club in Chicago that wanted to do it. So um, I went out there to join the club and uh, the discussion. And in the midst of the discussion, I, I began a sort of a back and forth with one woman who was telling me about why, you know, why one of the characters was acting a certain way and what that character had in mind and so on, which was diametrically opposed <laughs> to, to, the, to the way I had written the character. Nice. And I said, no, I'm sorry. That's, that, that's not what he's thinking. That's not what he's doing. And, you know, and wants to do. And, you know, and the woman said to me, yes, it is. And I was having this, this real battle. And I thought, then I said, I paused for a moment, took a deep breath and thought, you know, once these guys, these people are out there, you don't own them anymore. And, <laughs> and, I mean, I mean, who am I to tell this woman what this guy is thinking, right? right? Half the time in the process of writing the book, he's slapping me in the head and telling me I don't, I don't, I'm not going to do that anyway. Nice, know? nice. That's awesome. I can just, just imagine the epiphany happening. What am I? Why am I arguing with her? <laughs> nice. That's cool. That's that's neat to know how you, you create your characters. And just as a side note, after you mentioned earlier that, you know, your friend put you in a book and then had you bumped off. I mean, it's like, I didn't know if you maybe he's in here someplace, which only you know. Which. <laughs> so very, thanks for, uh, thanks for explaining that. I And by the way, I feel that I know your characters. They're very real. The way that you write interactions with feelings like anger snarkiness by the way you got snarkiness now man you got some of those characters who just it's like i've been in meetings with those guys you know it's like um the uh you know it's uh, suspicion fake niceties yeah you gotta love that one too um the uh it's it's so cool i mean here's an example and so these are you know for my listeners these are parts these are just little phrases taken from the book. So I've got this one. You figure it out. It's why you get the big bucks and I get the acid stomach. <laughs> and, and here's another that, that was from page 32. Tariff restrictions, Frank. Look, I appreciate your concern here, but why don't you leave the logistical solutions to my staff? They're already working on this. That's from page 61. And I, and I have my sources. Ha! Styles blurted. Don't, get, don't make me laugh. You never laugh. Ennis wanted to say, but didn't his comment about sources having no basis in fact some <laughs> of your characters interact in such a way that it's us like i i think i've been in meetings with them <laughs> I, I seriously think i've been in meetings with them and uh you know it's like uh but it's this it's this just kind of builds throughout the book i mean your your characters feel very real they're interacting the troubles they get themselves into or trying to get themselves out of or the you know, the different things that they say and do with each other that uh, um, you could see getting to an extreme and then trying to figure out how to uh, save yourself or save whatever it is that you're trying to save. They, uh, you know, they're just very real. I mean, what do you do to try and make them real like that? It, 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 again, it goes back to sort of my 
the foundation of my journalistic, you know, uh, background. Um, in, in journalism, you're, you're talking to real people. And um, so you, you begin to, you know, really, over the course of many years, you, you, you understand, you know, how, how people talk, ways that they think. You, you start recognizing different personalities, you know, that sort of thing. And um, it, it, when, when, when I write fiction, um, the challenge becomes turning something that's a word on a page into something that somebody would actually say in the way they say it. And that, in, that you know, get, getting in, in, into someone's head uh, is, is, is part of the challenge. And that sort of, you know, drives the, not, not just the narrative, but, you know, but the dialogue. Um, it, it's, it, it takes a lot of work. Um, I think it goes back to what, you know, what, what I was talking about uh, just earlier, just with you a little while ago. And that is that the, um, um, the, char- the characters live, the characters live when, when, when they take command and, and, um, um, and if, if that's, effect- if I'm effective at that, it, it's because, you know, it's, it's because I'm treating them journalistically. I mean, they're there because of, I mean, we're having, we're, they're having a conversation with me and that's, you know, be, be being recorded in, you know, in, in the novel. Boone Titanium Rings, found on the web at boonrings.com, is an affiliate partner of Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12. And I'm also a customer. I have this really cool ring that's got these carved pistons and and stars in it. I love it. They make rings of titanium that are carved, laser cut, and engraved, as well as they have inlays of many types of materials like meteorite, acrylic, wood, carbon fiber, and so many other types. They also have special collections that are incredible designs. One of the top sellers are the Gamer Rings, the Stealth Series, and the Black Zirconium. As a note, they also make earrings, pendants, cufflinks, and for you musicians, they make cool trumpet mouthpieces. Love it. Go to boonrings.com and at checkout, use my code, capital T, capital L, capital L, capital K, number 12, and you'll get 10% off your purchase. So go check them out. I love my ring, and I know that you will love yours. Well, it definitely comes through loud and clear, because it's the, I mean, you just feel like you're, I, I felt like I'm sitting in the room with people who I, I knew, <laughs> except they may not go to the extent that a couple of them went to, but I felt like, you know, especially ones, like I said, you got snarkiness down, you know, this the whole idea of, uh, um, I'm going to tell you what you want to hear, but that's not really what I'm thinking. <laughs> well, you know, the CEO Clifford Stiles, he insists upon, you know, controlling the, the meetings, you know, that he has, and he keeps beating up on Amelia Hartung, right? who is so much smarter than he is and so much better at her job. Right. And he recognizes that and that, you know, I mean, he won't admit it, but he recognizes it. So he continues to beat up on her and she, she, she knows that she knows every meeting that she goes to, that's what's going to happen. So she comes incredibly well prepared and that just drives him even crazier. But, but since she has to go through that kind of trauma every time, you know, she goes to work, I mean, it has all kinds of secondary effects on, on her life, her relationship with her husband, and so on. You know, that's part of the dynamic. It's it's you you play it well. You play it well. This is. Uh, hey, I have to ask this: Did you outline, or did you just kind of start writing and let your imagination go? 
Well, you know, back to what I said earlier, um, the, 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 the book began to evolve when characters started walking out of my journals, nice. <laughs> you know, and, and into a folder that I, that I started, I started preparing on this thing. And so, it, I mean, it was all over the place. I mean, it sort of had an idea, you know, of, of, of what I wanted to drive the narrative and an idea on how it was going to end up. Right. So, um, I mean, I'm, I am. I'm all over the place with it at this point. And you just can't create an almost 400-page novel without an outline. At some point, <laughs> you literally have to sit down and say, okay, this character's here, that character's there, they're moving, they need to move the plot along, and so on and so on. So it, it's, it's, it, the answer to your question is it's, it's pretty much a good deal of both. Gotcha, gotcha. The, you know, one of the aspects of your writing, Tony, that, that I really like is that you use imagery that makes you feel and see what the characters are feeling and seeing. Uh, for example, Paget had retired in West Palm Beach, a city whose existence seemed the result of a clash between golf course architects hellbent upon turning this area of Florida into one long fairway. I love that statement, by the way. There's others I'm going to read in just a second, but I love that one. Er, earlier in the book, there's one about the, the way she grabbed the coffee and the idea that the coffee was going to warm up simply because, you know, she's holding it, that it should be warm again. I, I love that one, too. I meant to include that one. Uh, you know, uh, here's another one. As a barely functional student in the business school, Diana managed to stay afloat with a C average, predictably alienating most other students. She gravitated toward the sons of other titans of industry who initially sought her out, but eventually found her companionship seldom worth the struggle. Here's another one. To Hartung, Watts looked as if he'd been awake day and night forever. Clearly, the human body would not put up with such a regimen. Could you talk a little bit about your use of imagery? I mean, because it's throughout the book and it's just awesome because you, you really, you know, you see, like I've seen somebody who they need to go to bed, man. <laughs> you know, they just got so much going on. And you, and you see the, the, and like I said, the thing about the golf courses in West Palm, that just made me laugh because it's like, <laughs> let's see how we can make this just work. And uh, I mean, just any of this, I mean, we've got, uh, but it's, it's throughout the book, the, the idea of the C average student who've tried to hang out with people and, and then they stop <laughs> worrying about her type thing. It's cool. Yeah, you're right to ask that question. I mean, setting setting sort of sets up a lot, you know, that goes on. The bit about the golf course, by the way, let's let's say, I mean, the character. I mean, it, 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 there's a bit part character there, but he's he's really important to to how the novel proceeds. Okay, and he was he was not highly regarded when he you know when he was with the company. And now he's just sort of like a drunk who sucks on martinis, you know, uh, too early in the day. And, uh, you know, when Caldwell, my investigator, goes to see him, you know, he, he's, he, he's not, you know, he remembers the guy who was never that much impressed with him. And, uh, but, but he's surrounded by the, by the real golfers in the golf course who, who start saying some demeaning things about him, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, they're Caldwell's, you know, allegiance to people, you know, where the company kicks in and, and he, you know, basically turns and says to them, you know, this guy was a major player, you know, in, in our company and so on. He defends him, you know, and, but that whole scene and, and, and it, it kind of sticks something in Caldwell's head that he needs to deal with when he gets back. And it, it kind of that, that, that scene sort of sets that up. 
I also I write a lot of poetry that never gets published and probably never will. But, <laughs> but it makes it makes me a real uh, really dedicated to metaphor, you know. And like for example, there, there's a scene where uh, Hartung, uh, you know, the, the woman in, you know who, who's running the supply operations, marriage is really really coming apart because she just doesn't pay attention to what needs to be done in her family. She's so focused on business, and at some point, one point she has literally gets in her car and drives and goes sits sits by a pond on a nice afternoon and starts to ask herself you know what what am i doing to my family i mean what's going on here and i i, I couldn't resist a bunch of these sort of canada geese start coming off out of the pond and walking up the road and she looks at them and she looks away the family is following the, you know the, the lead goose or gander and 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 thinks to herself you know if that should be my family, why am I not like that? I mean, I just can't resist something like that. Even I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. Oh, no, you're not. I love it. it- <laughs> but like, for example, Cold- Coldwell, the way he hooks up with the woman that really, really becomes at the core of the book, Isabel Pineda, is that Caldwell fancies himself as a, a lover of the arts, right? When he goes to investigate this woman, he realizes, he finds out that she's really a world-class artist, and he's immediately drawn to her paintings, and, you know, I mean, this this is how he defines himself. And um, she she looks at him and realizes that at this point in her career, so many of the people around her are just sycophants who are who, who like who like her art because it's in. That's I mean, I, just I mean, the imagery that you create is so real. And I mean, it just makes it and it goes with it. And it's cool to know that you write poetry because you can see how that that connection comes comes through like that, because you I mean, you really I mean, you get a feel for who the the, the character is, because especially because you talk about what they're thinking. You know, you put in there some of the thoughts they have. And and it's usually I mean, it just it just makes you, you know, either feel for them or hate them more or, you know, you know, just uh, and, and it really just you, you get you do. I guess my point is you make you do a good job painting pictures that really work. I, I get carried away. You know, my wife rolls her eyes sometimes. So the, by the way, my wife is like a, she's a voracious reader of whodunits and novels. She reads like a book a week. And she edited the first version of the book, but she, you know, edited it. She, she, she said, I'll read it, right? Don't ask me a thing about it until I'm done. So she would read it in bed at night, right? Scribbling and getting these scowls on her face. And I thought, great. You know, <laughs> but if she was done with it, I thought, well, this didn't work. <laughs> so I'm walking around with my chin in my shoes for a couple of weeks. And she said, just fix those things I told you about. But anyway, I'm sorry. I'm going down a rabbit trail. Here. No, you're fine. You're fine. This is awesome to know how you created uh, Unfinished Business. It's cool. The, uh, you know, it's, uh, I got to tell you, 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 it just, all that imagery and stuff just really makes those characters feel real because they're, they're letting their, their thoughts go there. I mean, there's things with, uh, relationships and such that are, that are going on where that has a possibility of interfering with <laughs> everything and just good stuff. I, I, Tony, we're, we're kind of coming cl- close to the end now, but before we go, do you want to leave the audience with some enticing thoughts about why they will like your book, Unfinished Business? Yeah, um, I, I, I think for, for a number of reasons. Well, first of all, as I said earlier, uh, they'll see themselves, anybody that's been in business. And, you know, there's, there, there are enough characters in this book. Uh, to where the, the, they'll see themselves. The other thing that I thought that I think is something that you know should uh, people should carry away about the book is this: 
I'm dealing with many, many uh, what would be complex dry business factors in this book, supply chains, stock manipulation, you know, money laundering, this sort of thing. And I, I realizing that, you know, for me to go into long explanations of how this kind of stuff works would, would drive people from reading it. So I, I really, really spent a lot of effort in weaving those elements into the plot line. So that you would, you know, so that and, and you would have to understand a bit about the supply chain to know, you know, what my detective was trying to figure out. It wouldn't not just an explanation of that. You would you would have to know how you, you how money gets laundered in offshore banks, you know. Um, but it would need to be part of a plot. It would need to be, it would need to take my detective down, you know, a particular trail and so on. Um, the fact that Amelia Hartung is pretty much trying to break through the glass ceiling at a corporation where the good old boys are doing everything to keep her down is not just an explanation of what she needs to go through, you know, but she's a re- very real character. And these are, the, these are the problems, these are the issues she has to deal with, both at work and, you know, with the family. Um, I mean, if, if people, you know, if teachers, for example, you know, wanted, you know, wanted to explain how business works, granted, this is fiction, okay, so you have to put that into context. Here, here's a lot of it right there in a story that impacts people's lives. And that's really what I was trying to get done. Very cool. It, it comes through loud and clear. I mean, I, I have a friend who worked in the corporate land, and it was interesting how the higher up the chain you went, the more the females and males were all divorced yeah. and, and that kind of played through in, in your heart character is that, uh, you know, she starts realizing all the problems that are in her life and, mm-hmm. uh, other things that are going on there, you know, and in reality, I mean, that, that thing, that's the first thing I thought of was the stories that she told me about, uh, um, and the, which is what ultimately made her decide to do something different because <laughs> they all were the further up you went, the more countries you went to, um, the less time you spent in uh, in your home city, and the more uh, um, the divorces started happening. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, of course. Crazy stuff. So, uh, um, hey, I got to ask this: uh, Do you have another novel in the works? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, well, you know, of course. But since this book took me the better part of twenty years, I'd, I'd probably die at least <laughs> more than halfway through it. Um, I am doing. Um, I, I, I'm doing a, a, a putting together a collection of short stories with kind of a recurring character. And those um, working with Amazon on this book has been very uh, helpful to me in a number of ways too, because you, you have you know have ways to get of getting books out there, you know, and ways to market them. And I, I um, I've in the quarterly magazine that you had mentioned earlier. We, we're in our tenth issue and um it's the staff writers in that magazine are really some of the best people around well uh given that they write for a magazine you can bet that some of them are writing books so we have actually three books in the pipeline now of an imprint that i started called natural travel of books and and just as you, just as it sounds uh, it's where people can buy my book it's naturaltraveler.com and there'll be more things coming down the turnpike you know for the imprint as well very cool. Very cool. So if someone wanted to connect with you, Tony, and learn more, is there some place you want to send them? Or, I mean, we just talked about naturaltraveler.com. Is there other places or? Yeah, they, they can, they can email me at, so my, my 
business email, which is ntbooks, as in natural travel books, but ntbooks at me, M-E dot com. Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes so that uh, it's easy for them to uh, find and remember and uh, reach out to you. Very good stuff. So I have two last questions I want to ask you before uh, we call it quits. Uh, The first one goes like this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? (laughs) Writing is a disease. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, nice. I think I I went way back once and and thought I I wrote some silly uh, short story when I was... Thirteen or so, and uh, I had a PAL police athletically baseball team. I was the captain of the team when I was uh, fourteen or fifteen. It was the only team in the league that had its own yearbook, uh, you know, which I which I wrote. Um, I, I I just can't stop. You, you can't stop. I mean, uh, I tell people, you know, you know, writers writers can't stop. They sometimes just stop getting paid, you know, and and that and, and that's that's never been the main issue for me. I just, I, I just can't stop. And, and I, I like, uh, really, I, I like entertaining people. You know? Very cool. Very cool. Hey, the last question, do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? If so, who was it? And what would you say if given the chance to say thank you? Oh my goodness. Um, first of all, let me say this. I mean, I, I, that question, that, that question is a really important one for me. I, I have great admiration for teachers. Um, I'd have to go back, way back to my very first elementary school teacher, which I had, oddly enough, from grades one through six. And I, and I think the thing that she did in her subtle, wonderful way for us little kids was to show us that you really did matter, you know, that you, 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 there was a contribution that you could make. And in a, in a sort of general sense, that, that has really driven me for the, you know, really, for the rest of my life so far. And um, also, and I'm reminded of her all the time because my wife and I have a favorite restaurant in town and the waitress that invariably takes care of us is studying you know, elementary education. And um, I, I, I'm constantly, you know, complimenting her. I, I tell her, I, you know, that I, I, I'm not stroking you here. I said, you're really one of my heroes. And, you know, you, you, need, you need to do, do what you need to do because it really does make an impact. That's excellent. Thank you so much for sharing. That's so cool. Tony, thanks so much for talking with me today about your book, Unfinished Business. Awesome story, awesome read, great characters in writing. And I'm wishing you the very best in all you do. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It's a pleasure. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.